China is trying to win Europe over to prevent them from going to the U.S. side. And so Europe is happy to to pick those goodies. And I think that this might cause problems in the transatlantic relationship uh, if Europe continues to be seen by the U.S. public as just arbitraging and, and benefiting. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Megan Rudkai, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Franz Ocelia and Samuel Koh. Does the new EU-China trade agreement signal a closer relationship between the two powers? The EU and China reached an important trade agreement, just as the US is seeking to strengthen its own relationships with its European allies. Why have the EU and China reached this deal? What does it contain? And how will the new Biden administration respond? And will the EU Parliament go through with ratifying the agreement? To discuss these questions, joining us today on the podcast is Teresa Fallon. Professor Teresa Fallon is a founder and director of the Center for Russia, Europe, Asia Studies in Brussels. She is concurrently a member of the Council for Security Cooperation to Asia Pacific, a non-resident senior fellow of the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and a member of the CAPS Task Force on AI and Cybersecurity. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Fallon. Uh, it's a real honor to be with you. Now, to start us off, we want to know why did the European Union and China need or wanted this comprehensive agreement on investment? In other words, what was the nature of, of Chinese investment in the European Union and European investment in China? And what sorts of related diplomatic challenges needed to be resolved for this deal to, to go through? Well, the, so the EU-China investment agreement, uh, the Europeans called the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, the Chinese called the Bilateral Investment Treaty, a bit, uh, was designed to replace the 25 individual EU member states' bilateral investment treaties with China to come up with one comprehensive agreement. Now, this was proposed seven years ago, and it has moved in fits and starts, but They've had 35 meetings, so it's been a very long process. And it's been sitting on the back burner until actually the U.S.-China negotiations on phase one. So during that period of time, there was a lot of tension between the U.S. and China. And so the EU managed to arbitrage that into an agreement uh, to finalize the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment with China by December 2020. So they managed to extract this promise that they were never able to do before. And that uh, gave them a, a deadline. But so we saw no movement then. They had the EU-China summit in September uh, 2020, but still no movement. And they're getting closer and closer to the deadline. And so uh, the Europeans even announced at the end of the summit in the press conference that they weren't certain that the Chinese were very serious about this because there was no uh, movement on the negotiations. So then in November with the election of President Biden, there was all of a sudden a big push to get this through. And this coincided with the German rotating presidency of the EU Council. And so under Angela Merkel, she really shepherded this through. Why? Because German industry really had the most to gain. If you take the next five EU member states combined, they don't equal the amount of investment Germany has in China and the amount of trade Germany has with China. So it was largely seen as a German engine. All the stars were aligned. You had a German EU Council presidency. You have a German, as Ursula von der Leyen, head of the European Commission president. Uh, she's a European Commission president. And then you also have uh, DG Trade head is a German. 
and you had a German ambassador uh, pushing this through. So everything seemed to be aligned in Germany's favor, and it they managed through a great deal of uh, uh, negotiations to push it over the the finish line on December 30th. So what they managed to get was an agreement in principle, because obviously a lot of things needed to be negotiated. So they had an agreement in principle. And now we've been, uh, we've seen them working out the details, the fine details, and always the devil's in the details. Uh, So the amount of EU investment into China as a whole uh, is 140 billion euros. Uh, The amount of Chinese FDI into the EU amounted to almost 120 a billion euros. And we've seen that grow from a very, very low level. But with the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, we saw China's uh, investment in FDI investment in Europe ramp up dramatically. And it peaked in 2016. So their investments have largely been in infrastructure and technology, but uh, you know they, they run the full gambit. But th- those are the areas that I think many people uh, focus on, the technology angle, especially the infrastructure angle. So I'm wondering, what are some of the key provisions of this agreement between the EU and China? What sorts of problems were they trying to solve with regards to investment through this agreement? And, you know, what was each side trying to achieve, both the goals of the EU, the goals of China, and did either side achieve it? Since the EU is largely open to foreign investment, China really has pretty much everything that they want. So in this situation, Europe was the demandeur. They wanted, they were asking for more market access in China. So the European Commission has presented this agreement as the most ambitious agreement, I quote, that China has ever concluded with a third country. So this agreement binds China's liberalization of investments and prevents backsliding on conditions of market access for EU companies. So in in some respects, we saw that the timing of this is quite interesting as well, because the European Commission presented this agreement as, I quote, the most ambitious agreement that China has ever concluded with a third country. This agreement binds China's liberalization of investments and prevents backsliding on conditions of market access for EU companies. In addition, it provides for the elimination of quantitative restrictions, equity caps, or joint venture requirements in a number of sectors. In the automotive sector, China agreed to remove joint venture requirements and to grant market access for new energy vehicles. In the health sector, China promised to eliminate joint venture requirements for private hospitals of particular interest to France. And the CAI, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, will also facilitate EU market access in other sectors, including research and development, telecommunication, cloud services, computer services, international maritime transport, air transport, and other services. On financial services, market opening provisions match those of the U.S.-China phase one trade deal. So the CAI also seeks to improve the level playing field for EU companies to ensure that Chinese state-owned enterprises act in accordance with commercial criteria. It establishes the obligation for an enterprise to provide certain information and provides for transparency on subsidies in the service sectors. To prevent the forced transfer of technology, the CAI forbids requirements to transfer technology to a joint venture partner and interference in contractual freedom in technology licensing. Confidential business information collected by administrative bodies, for instance, in the process of certification of a good or a service will be protected from unauthorized disclosure. In addition, China will provide equal access to standard setting bodies for EU investors. But despite these improvements in market access and a level playing field, Chinese 
treatment of EU FDI in China still falls short of the openness of the EU to Chinese investment. So it doesn't include any investor protection mechanism, which is, was one of the key asks for individual investors to litigate disputes, but only a state-to-state -state dispute settlement mechanism and a political level monitoring mechanism at pre-litigation phase. The agreement also includes references to environmental labor standards and to the implementation of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. But many critics have said that they're selling the same horse twice. For example, uh, the Paris Agreement, well, that was agreed five years ago. And in the CHI, they say that they will implement it. Well, that's not really a, such a big gain, is it? And the other issue is, you know, they have joined the WTO, the World Trade Organization, back in 2001. And we still see that they haven't implemented many of these issues, especially in regard to subsidies. So the EU is kind of celebrating this as big wins, but these are actually selling the same thing twice that China has already agreed to. You know, it's really interesting what you've described. You know, earlier you mentioned that the EU is asking a lot you know, out you know, from China for this deal. And so Europe is celebrating that you know, maybe they got many of the aspects that they were asking for. But at the same time, critics are wondering if the EU is selling the same horse twice. Maybe they're not getting as much as it maybe looks like they're getting on the surface. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, is there a clear winner coming out of this deal? Did the EU get more out of this deal? Did China get more out of this deal? Is it a balanced deal with no, with no real clear winner? Um, what would be your opinion on that? Well, the Europeans have said it's the best deal they could get. It's not their dream deal, but they considered the last-minute concessions that Xi Jinping himself stepped in to make, and that with this time constraint and also with the Biden administration coming in, the Chinese said, take it or leave it. You know, They didn't want to continue the negotiation once uh, President Biden took office. Why is that? Because China was trying to prevent a type of united front uh, between the Europe and the U.S., because President Biden made it clear that he wanted to revitalize relations with Europeans and other allies and partners. And by doing that, that would give them actually more leverage to perhaps come up with a better deal. As it stands, this deal, which is still not completed yet, uh, there is a whole process that it has to go through. Now, the, the, the regular deal was just published uh, January 22nd, and it's not in the legally scrubbed um, way yet. You know, the lawyers have to go over it and make sure it's all in compliance. In addition, what's key for any sort of trade lawyer is looking at the annexes, which were not yet published. And that's where all the devil in the details are. So that hasn't been published yet. And everyone's waiting to see what that says. So they are still negotiating a, a great deal of the details. So, But uh, clearly, the EU has gotten more than China. China has just gotten a few things, for example, um, solar panels and energy sector, because the EU market is largely open to China's investment already. So China has pretty much everything that they want, and the Europeans are asking for more market access. They also wanted the key ask was you know, for investment protection, but that is so complicated that they were unable to make any progress on that at this point. But they've agreed that within the next two years, they will have a separate agreement on that. So that might have to go through the EU member states, individual parliaments, which will be a long, lengthy process. But as it stands now, the way they've designed this agreement, it will only have to be ratified by the European Parliament. So that's a little easier than going through 27 separate EU member states. As you just mentioned, Professor Fallon, now that the deal is going through its stages and almost to the point where it's about to be ratified by the European Parliament. What has been the public reaction to the agreement within the EU? And do you think it's going to be ratified 
There are two areas I would say that are key. Because it was largely seen as a German engine that pushed this agreement through, there is some resentment from other EU member states. And there is an unusual event that happened during all of this because it was done virtually. Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, has chosen to promote the, the comprehensive agreement on investment as a great success that Europe is promoting their values in China, as well as uh, promoting labor rights, especially in regard to Xinjiang, and that uh, the language of the agreement is a lever to help improve labor rights. But immediately after uh, the uh, political announcement was... So first off, we saw in the European Parliament, they have been very vocal about labor issues, especially in regard to forced labor and Xinjiang. And they have said that they will not ratify this if there isn't stronger language in the agreement. And many market access agreements do not include labor rights. But since the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has presented it as promoting European values and using uh, the ILO agreements to kind of put a fig leaf on this of European values, when in reality, they were just trying to get increased market access and get some sort of uh, guarantees later down the road. So I think that there has been a big pushback. Uh, it, this is seen as hypocrisy. And the European Parliament has been very vocal about this. And so they uh, passed statements about forced labor issues. But the largest group within the European Parliament is the EPP, the European People's Party, which also uh, Angela Merkel and Ursula von der Leyen, they are all members of this party. It's the largest party. So we've done tallies of how the vote, if it was held today, it would pass by two votes. So it would be tight, but it would still pass. And uh, it's um, unclear, uh, you know, what could happen within a year. So if this was a year where we saw the new security law passed in Hong Kong, uh, increased tensions in the South China Sea, saber rattling towards Taiwan. But the EU and you know, even problems on the Indian border uh, with the Chinese and with people dying, and the EU decided to ink an agreement uh, with, with China. So in, in some respects, it helps to legitimize uh, what is happening right now. And, that's how it played out in China, that, you know, that the international community, the European Union wants to do business deals with them. And it, it lent them a, a level of legitimacy in a year that was you know, a pretty awful year, I think, for many people, especially in regards to obfuscation on the origins of COVID-19 and increased tensions with Australia for inquiring you know, if there should be an investigation into that. So it's been in many corners kind of uh, looked at as a poor deal that the EU had a chance uh, to stand up for human rights and issues. And instead, they kind of caved and, and made a, an economic deal. Will this trade agreement lead to more concessions along the road? The BDI is the German Federation of Investment, and they are underwhelmed by this agreement. It has had a lot of positive spin by European officials because that's their job. But it seems that many industry people are rather underwhelmed. Yes, some will benefit, but it's not exactly what they wanted. And there's also, you know, the bad optics. Plus, in addition to that, it's kind of increased. I mean, the question is, has it increased uh, some frictions in U.S.-Europe uh, relations? Because prior to this, uh, as we know, there can only be one president at a time in the United States. So Jake Sullivan uh, kind of sent out a tweet uh, suggesting that the Europeans, uh, you know, 
uh, that the new Biden, the incoming Biden administration would look forward to working with them together. So some have interpreted that as, you know, wait, hold on, don't don't rush this agreement through. Um, wait till the new Biden administration comes in. And since the EU uh, went ahead uh, very rapidly uh, to get this deal done, it was seen by some in Washington, D.C. as a poke in the eye. So it's it achieved maybe what Xi Jinping wanted to do to, to throw some sand into the wheels of possible EU-US uh, revitalized relations. Now, Professor Fallon, looking now towards the future, how do you think this agreement will shape the future of investment between the European Union and China? And what will be the wider economic impacts of the agreement? Well, I think that this is a, a real barometer of relations because, for example, Germany's growth strategy is clearly predicated on more trade and more investment with China. And so the U.S. has kind of a decoupling narrative, a strategic decoupling narrative. And the Europeans' position is this is our strategic autonomy. So what does that mean? Does that mean strategic autonomy away from the U.S.? But at, this is the, the snag. I mean, if you're uh, advocating strategic autonomy, but while at the same time becoming more uh, involved with China, which we've seen the deeper the economic ties are, for example, because Germany is so has such a deep economic ties with China, that can also be a form of uh, interdependence that becomes weaponized. So, for example, we saw Wang Yi in Germany make a statement, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind of like you have a nice car industry in China. It would be a pity if anything happened to it. So it it almost is a lever of influence. And I think that people aren't thinking so carefully about that. Uh, Europe is far more reliant on China than the U.S. So it's a, almost a luxury for the U.S. to talk about strategic decoupling. And in fact, we've seen Europe make FTAs with uh an EU-Japan FTA, a free trade agreement, uh, an EU-Singapore uh, free trade agreement, and also EU-South Korea free trade agreement. But even with those free trade agreements, we see more concentration in China. So this is an issue, I think, for uh, you know the future of Europe, because they are becoming far more dependent on Chinese trade. And this agreement, although it's not ideal, it, and as the Europeans have described it, it's the best that they could get under the circumstances. They were happy to get it because it meant some improvement in all areas except services. It's, so it's MFN, so it's a most favored uh, nation trading status. So what the Europeans were able to negotiate in services will be shared by the rest of the world. But the rest of the agreement is really to favor European companies. So... Um, We've seen, you know, even in Europe, how a company like Ericsson, which you would presume is a competitor of Huawei, uh, we've seen how the head of Ericsson was actually lobbying for Huawei to be accepted in Europe. Why? Because Ericsson produces and manufactures things in China. And so they were actually asked to lobby on Huawei's behalf. So you get this kind of economic coercion, uh, the, the tighter the ties are. So it's an interesting development. And with the Biden administration, who wants to have this kind of grouping of democracies to almost act as a counterbalance to China and to work together to create some sort of pressure to shape China's choices more effectively, uh, seems to be uh, weak. Because we saw with Angela Merkel's or Chancellor Merkel's comments uh, at the virtual Davos this year, I think what she said is a real... Uh, 
barometer of where relations might be going. She said that Germany will not join anything like that. They will not join any sort of bloc. So I think as the largest economy in Europe and one of the most powerful countries in Europe, especially now that the UK has left, we see this is the first deal that has been made since Brexit. And so instead of having a UK, Germany, France kind of balancing group, we see a Germany-France balancing group and the you know traditional Franco-German engine of the EU means pretty much Germany is in the driving seat and we see how policy is being made. And there has been a lot of um, blowback, I would say, because of that. I call it the BIPs problem. So you have Belgium, Italy, Poland, and Spain, and in addition to the Netherlands, who are kind of unhappy that they see that Germany and France are getting special deals with China. There's a lot of stories going on. Uh, I can only say that this is rumors because I haven't seen uh, clear evidence. No one is going to, to actually publish about this. Uh, but in one very well-respected German uh, publication called WeWo, uh, there was an article written that Germany, as a reward for Germany helping to get this uh, Kai agreement over the finish line, that Deutsche Telekom uh, would get a special sweetheart deal inside China. So the, the idea of reciprocity and things like that, it seems that France and Germany are getting sweetheart deals and the rest of European the rest of the European member states feel maybe a bit of jealous and uh, are wary of this type of, of deal. So they feel that it's a reward to Germany, especially. And then we saw with the, the meeting, uh, technically France should not have been in on this video call whatsoever, but you had Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, Charles Michel, uh, also commission um, head of the president of the council, and you had Angela Merkel. She had a right to be there because she was um, president of the rotating council presidency, but there was absolutely no reason for uh, Macron to, to be at this meeting. And so this has caused other problems. So people see France and Germany playing above the heads of the rest of the EU member states. And this is also perhaps accomplishing what China wants to see, kind of a divide and rule approach to Europe. So you see uh, tensions between EU member states when you have France and Germany, it kind of seen receiving special goodies from China. Also, you have tensions between the European Commission and the European Parliament because the Commission is trying to spin this. They'll have to be on their best behavior for at least for the next several months in order to you know, fin finalize it and also to make sure that the Chinese sign it as well. And you also have tensions in the U.S.-Europe uh, relations. Uh, some have seen it as possibly poisoning the well in the relationship. It's early days. This could fall under its own pressure. I don't know if that's the case, but it, a lot can happen in a year, and it remains to be seen. So I think that tactically, the, Beijing was really brilliant in how they uh, um, used this agreement to further their aims. And I think, you know, as you described earlier in the podcast, the timing of this deal is so fascinating to me. You know, it came about at a time when you know, the U.S. was initiating trade wars against China, and it was concluded right before President Biden could take office and potentially extend a new leaf to Europe, which would, of course, um, you know, potentially antagonize China or at least, you know, work against China. Um, and so... How will this agreement affect the diplomatic relationship between the U.S. and the EU going forward with the new Biden administration? Um, how do you see this deal impacting that relationship, if at all? Well, I would say there are two aspects to that. Uh, 
under the Trump administration, they negotiated a phase one deal. And there was a great acrimony in Europe because it was pretty much a managed trade deal. So the benefits that the U.S. was able to get from phase one was not shared with other countries, including Europe. So U.S. Um, seemed to benefit, even though we know about 58% of the deal was only followed through. Uh, you could say it was because of COVID-19 or because of, of Beijing's reluctance. It's hard to, to underestimate. But um, phase one deal was not such a huge success, which also should be a warning sign to Europe because you can make lots of promises. But what happens with the most important thing is the delivery. And the other issue uh, uh, is the EU-US dialogue. Now, this was proposed in a virtual meeting with Secretary of State Pompeo and EU High Representative Joseph Borrell. And the U.S. took them up on it. So the Europeans were saying, we would like to talk more about China together. So they initiated this EU-U.S. dialogue. And because Europe, uh, let's face it, they were pretty clear they weren't uh, reluctant to help a Trump administration. They, uh, In their mind, uh, they, did, they weren't so happy with the Trump administration. Uh, for example, the Trump administration called Europe a foe, that it was worse than China. So in my career, I've never seen relations so low in transatlantic relations, ex uh, except during this period of the Trump administration. A close second would be um, the first Iraq, uh, the Iraq war under George Bush. So I would say that um, the fact that they were reaching out to the U.S. to have an EU-U.S. dialogue was a very positive sign. And even though it was initiated during the Trump administration, showed that there was real concern on the Europeans' part. So um, China understood. So then, after this dialogue uh, was announced, the Europeans wanted to show that they were proactive, and they presented a paper on what areas the EU and the US can work together on. And so that was all that was needed then for Xi Jinping to say, "Hey, you know, we've, <laughs> let's kind of stop this in its tracks," and he. Uh, accelerated. So we saw it with RESEP, the Regional uh, Cooperation Agreement in Asia. Uh, it's a more shallow agreement, but still it was a, a strategic or tactical move by, by Beijing. And then shortly after that, uh, they worked on the CHI agreement with the Europeans. So we see this kind of, uh, in my view, uh, Beijing's strategy to kind of have these economic agreements to buy cooperation and, and silence and not to have the U.S. kind of build a, a, a counterbalancing group. So I think it, Beijing has been quite effective. Now, it remains to be seen uh, how this will happen going forward. Let's see if this CHI deal even, you know, completes. I've, I've seen some editorials in the U.S., so I think it's a bit premature. We should wait and see where this goes. And uh, interestingly, on uh, Monday, former European Commission President Juncker took a swipe at this agreement, which to my mind is very unusual that a uh, former president is kind of criticizing uh, the current president. So he was really annoyed about the ILO um, labor being kind of glossed over and he criticized the agreement. And then strangely as well, uh, Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, also was rather critical of how this deal might affect transatlantic relations. So the debate is ongoing in Europe. Uh, it's not clear where this is going to go. It's, it depends how uh, the commission is trying to spin it, but we're seeing voices that are well-respected, uh, Tusk and Juncker, making comments about the deal. So we'll see where this actually goes. I think the U.S. should be monitoring this very closely. And um, uh, I, I, 
I think the Biden administration, you know, the very first things they did, you know, they talked to Jan Stoltenberg at NATO. They affirmed how NATO was so important to them. They're trying to reassure uh, allies and partners. So I think that these are all very good moves, but it's only the second week of uh, the Biden administration. So these things will take time. But I think uh, this is an area where U.S. really needs to invest some time. Uh, with allies to reassure them and also to come up with a, a strategy. It's clear that China, you know, they fear China punishing them. So Europeans, you know, industry are, are fearful of China punishing them. And maybe Europeans aren't so fearful of the U.S. punishing them. So it will be interesting to see how to calculate the and calibrate the correct uh, type of policies with Europe, because there's a lot that still has to be worked out between U.S.-EU trade issues as well. We have the 232 tariffs um, on European steel and, and other goods, and I think that there's a lot of room uh, to work on the relationship. Speaking of Beijing's strategy towards Europe, how and, and considering that the U.K. has left the European Union, how has the U.K. reacted to this CHI agreement between China and the EU? I think that's a really good question. I think because the UK is smaller and nimbler, they're able to move far more quickly. We've seen that with the vaccines. Uh, we had this whole vaccine story this weekend. But I think they're watching very closely because they thought what the EU gets is what we're likely to get. So I think that there was nothing in the deal that really made them too worried. Um, some uh, The services area, the MF, they will be able to get anyway. So I think they're watching carefully. But I think... Um, they have made a very clear stance on Xinjiang and human rights. And it's almost like a competition now because the EU seems to be weak on supporting human rights issues. Uh, and the UK is coming out with stronger statements on human rights. So Dominic Grab, his background is as a human rights lawyer. And I think that really shows they're also keenly interested in what's happening in Hong Kong uh, and the new security law. So I think that... Uh, Kai is kind of a barometer of what relations might look like with the UK. But I think that China has a very different relationship with, with the UK, and it, it remains to be seen how uh, that's going to work out, especially with the tensions now with Hong Kong. Professor Fallon, to wrap us up, we want to end the podcast by speaking about what are the wider geopolitical impacts that this European Union-China agreement will have. Does it signal a, a strengthening of relations between the two blocks, the two powers, perhaps at the expense of the United States? No, that's a really good question because, uh, you know, we always say that the EU is, likes to sit on the fence, right? And having these great powers like China and the U.S., you can see how they've been arbitraging, arbitraging the tensions between the EU-China relations. And so it, uh, Sabine Wyan, the head of DG Trade, has made it quite clear that these offers were given to them uh, because of the sweetheart, you know, the love letter that they had uh, devised between on the EU-US dialogue. And so China is trying to win Europe over to prevent them from going to the US side. And so Europe is happy to, to pick those goodies. And I think that this might cause problems in the transatlantic relationship uh, if Europe continues to be seen by the US public as just arbitraging and, and benefiting because let's face it, uh, the U.S. pays, I think, about 75% of NATO, uh, which is a very important alliance. And um, the Europeans are obviously wealthy and have a huge population. And that there has been a desire for 
we've always talked about burden sharing, but now since the U.S. is focusing more on the Indo-Pacific, there is more discussion about burden shifting, expecting that the Europeans should carry a heavier load for their own neighborhood, for example, in the Eastern Mediterranean and you know, uh, North Africa and even Middle East, so that the Europeans really need to invest more in their own defense. And uh, an agreement like this shows that maybe they aren't thinking longer term uh, about the geopolitical implications. We saw in December 2019, Ursula von der Leyen described the European Commission now as a geopolitical commission, because traditionally they only looked at the world through an economic lens. But I would call it almost the spin commission, because what they do, they continue to look at the world through only an economic lens. And as this agreement uh, demonstrates, the CHI, but it could be a bookend to the ending of a, a period now of EU-China relations, that this CHI agreement is the end and, and will start a new uh, relationship with the U.S. Uh, I think it's very important. It's, the EU needs to do more than just use slogans like we are geopolitical. They really have to think geopolitically. And signing these types of uh, agreements that actually increase dependence on China at a time when the U.S. and other countries are very worried about this type of weaponized independence doesn't bode well for Europe's strategic thinking. Well, Professor Fallon, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for your time, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.